Good evening, professors, and happy Thanksgiving. Welcome to this week's issue of Three Deeper Cuts newsletter and podcast. I'm your host, Chuck G. Every week, we bring you something to think about, something to read, or something to listen to. Three Deeper Cuts is brought to you by Formalin Fixed Paraffin Embedded Tissue. Emphasis on the formalin. Because without the high exposure to 10% buffered neutral formalin that I received during my four years of residency in St. Louis, I wouldn't be able to think about all the crazy things that I write about here at Three Deeper Cuts Publishing. And if you're not a pathologist and you're listening to us right now, thank you. And welcome. What's up, fellas and ladies? Great to be here. Happy Thanksgiving. Couple of announcements. Just got back from Austin last week at a professional meeting. The American Society of Cytopathology. All kinds of updates from the experts. It's a lot more interesting to hear people talk up close and summarize decades worth of research findings. Always better to just hear that in person, in my opinion. What else? It's a beautiful down, beautiful drive down the I-35 south through Waco, the roaring Brazos River, through Baylor University, down into Central Texas, Austin. The place reminds me more and more like Los Angeles, both the good and the bad. And I remember on my second night down there, I walked by the comedy Mothership, Joe Rogan's Club and the attached venue named, affectionately named Mitzi's. I had no idea that my hotel was going to be so close to this place. So on the one hand, I was excited, but on the other hand, I was kind of disappointed because I couldn't, I couldn't get a ticket. Usually you can just get on standby or something, but I'm telling you the line. So I, I walk up to this place and I said, Hey, do you have any seats open for the 10 o'clock show? He said, no, we're completely sold out, but there's standby. And I said, you know what? I don't even need a chair. I'll, I'll take standing room. I'll tip your, I'll tip you guys, you know, generously. Uh, and I'll be in and out. And she's like, sure, you can do that, but I need you to go to the standby line right around the corner. And so I go around the stand, standby line and this line is at least three times the size of the line outside the comedy store in L.A. I have never seen anything like this at a comedy club. So uh, since, I, since I don't do lines, I, I just kept walking. But the next night, there was a little club down the street called the Velveeta Room. And I looked it up on the internet... And they were having a show, so I thought I'd check it out. It's more of an alt-comedy show, but I was a fan. I sat down, and the first few minutes were cool. Some local comics. I love supporting these local clubs, man. I just love it. It's open mic comedy, stand-up comedy, small, local, locally produced shows. I just love that stuff because it's the last bastion of free speech. You can't take that away from people. What are you going to do? It's not popular enough to cancel the show. People say all kinds of outrageous things. First few comments were good. Afterwards, it got a little bit more on like just the raunchy, disgusting type of genre. But I don't know if they're trying to differentiate themselves. It would make sense because they're right down the street from the comedy mothership. But they had a cartoonist up on stage with the comedian and she was just drawing drawing out the jokes but 15 minutes into it 
she stopped drawing the jokes and she started just drawing caricatures of the comedian telling the jokes, which uh, ended up getting more laughs. And it, it was just unexpected. It was very, it was cute. It was creative. It it worked very well. So that made for a good first hour of entertainment. I left right as this crazy guy called who calls himself Lizard Guy, completely tattooed from head to toe in green lizard lizard scales. And he even had those knobby implants above his eyebrows to, like, mimic a lizard's brow. And his teeth were sharpened, like knife, like jagged knives. It was repulsive to see, but impressive to think about how much effort he put into crafting this physical identity of Lizard Man. And he pulls out a 15-inch real-life sword like a short sword and he tells us that he's planning on swallowing it and he said a few other things about the story of how he got this sword and how he's never been injured but he's heard about people getting injured or something like that and he could potentially bleed out and once he started saying stuff like that you know I was like you know what man I don't I don't know if this is within my scope of practice I'm probably the only physician here no thanks this is the one night <laughs> this is one night off that Daddy Chuck has gotten in over six months. So let me just go ahead and exit stage right. And so I got out of there pretty quickly. Walked down the street. I had previously got myself tickets to the Paul Cawthon concert. C A U T H E N. If you're ever in Texas, I would recommend seeing this guy live. It was a great show. Uh, I don't know much about country western, but I felt like I did because the music was so inviting and warm and friendly. It was over at Stubbs Barbecue Joint, the big venue out in the back in the sand and gravel. It was an all-around great time, and I wrapped up the night just going in and out of a few hardcore shows down the street. All in all, a success, a much-needed Night to blow off some steam, came back the next day, got in some pull-ups, burpee variations, overhead presses, you know, the works. So, without further ado, let's get into the topic for this week, Thanksgiving addiction. I'm thankful for a lot of things. I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for my job, my income, my stability. I'm thankful for the food in my belly. I'm thankful for the roof over my head. I'm thankful for that that I have two legs to stand on. I have two arms to work out with, to help people with, to serve people with. Grateful for all those things. And most importantly, I'm grateful for you, the listener who's listening to me right now, who's joining me on this odyssey. The topic for today is the book by Eric Maria Remarque, the German novelist who wrote this book called All Quiet on the Western Front. This book had been sitting on my shelf for years. I never got around to reading it. And I just gradually got more and more into some of these old books, partly as a means, partly as a form of escapism. I just felt that binge-watching and Netflix started to become so predictable. All the shows are just templated out, uh, literally. Uh, I, I mean, there's there's screenwriters' templates on the internet. You can just look up how they write these shows. And so what better form of escapism than reading a good book, uh, which is basically forced meditation? So let me just give you a little quick background, Eric Maria Remarque. The German novelist, World War I veteran, he describes the extreme conditions of trench warfare during World War I, 1914 to 1918, tracing the experiences of the main character, Paul Balmer, who is a German, a soldier of the German Imperial Army, so fighting for the Kaiser. And the start of the book, he's at his parents' place. He also has a sister in a little German village. 
and he volunteers for the German army. He goes to a training camp. That's the first like 80 pages of the book. And he meets this sergeant named Corporal Himmelstas, who is actually the former postman at the town that he used to live in, as well as a few of his other friends on the Western Front, Lear, Mueller, Krop, Kemrick, uh, and a few other characters, all with their own quirky personalities and experiences that brought them to the Western Front. And the book is overall very dark. There's some humor mixed into it. There's some self-reflection and transformation that's mixed in. There's not much redemption. There's a very raw portrayal of what the human side of a soldier's life is. And that's a life that most people, including myself, uh, will never experience. So just to quickly outline some of the characters, Paul Bomber, the main character, central figure of the novel, Albert Kropp, Kropp and Bomber, uh, they are in the same school. Kropp is well-respected. He's uh, thought to be, well, not thought to be, he's kind of the more clear thinker of the group. He gets wounded like several of the others. Uh, The next character, High Westhus, he is a, a tall guy, good sense of humor. He is a digger on his, in his civilian life. He's roughly the same age as Paul. They're about 19 years old. He gets injured fatally in his back. And there's some gruesome scenes in, in the book, one of which where um, Sergeant now Himmelstoss um, redeems himself in combat and carries this character to safety. Next is Friedrich Mueller, one of Balmer's classmates. He's also 19 when he volunteers to join the German army. He is one of the more scholarly characters in the book, walking around with reading material and he later gets killed I don't mean to destroy the book for you but I'm leaving out a lot Okay, I'm giving you sketches of the book I'm trying to just get you excited about reading classic books that's all I'm trying to do here fellas next is Stanislaus Kaczynski aka Cat who was a reserve militiaman. He was a cobbler in his civilian life. He's known for having a sixth sense. Next is Jaden. This is a character who was a locksmith on the outside, and he is not in the same school class as the rest of the guys. There's also some... uh, Secondary characters, Kantarek, Peter Lear, Burtnick, Himmelstoss. I wouldn't so far as to call Himmelstoss a secondary character. He's a negative figure in the first half of the book. He's this abusive corporal who later gets promoted to sergeant. He's quite sadistic, actually. Next characters are Dettering, Joseph Homaker, Franz Kemrick. Uh, Kemrick was also 19 years old. He enlisted with Balmer. They were best friends, and he gets shot in the leg early on. Joseph Bame. Uh, okay, so that's like a quick overview of the cast of characters. And... You know, I thought about reading you from the from page one, but I don't know if I'll be able to cover all of this in a reasonable amount of time. So I'll just I'll just summarize. 
the first 45 pages or so of the book, they are just describing what life is like in the pre pre Western Front schoolhouse. So basically they are in 10 weeks of military training uh, where they meet Corporal Himmelstas and he's this psycho that the sadistic disciplinarian who's got a chip on his shoulder maybe because he used to be the postman of the village they used to live in and all the kids recognize him and maybe he's he's a real jerk and you hate him in the first part of this book there's a scene in there where they fight back and they are walking back from this latrine area carrying this bucket of sewage and Himmelstoss is walking back from his nightly outing at a bar and they spill some of the sewage on his clothes and he has this adult tantrum or whatever and it is just an example of them kind of rebelling against this sadistic leader. So on page 46, fast forward, they're still in the schoolhouse. There's just a scene here where um, there's two characters, Kindervater and Jaden, so they wet the bed, and Himmelstoss forces them to sleep on bunk beds with one better bedwetting soldier above and one be- below. So they essentially either pee on themselves, pee on the other person, and the person on the bottom eventually just sleeps on the floor. And he just generates this hatred amongst the soldiers and that will be a theme in this first 50 to 100 pages of the book so page 47 48 49 that's the scene where he's coming back so we and then they catch him uh coming back they they so they so he says page 48 we seized the bed cover made a quick leap threw it over his head from behind and pull it round him so that he stood there with a white sack unable to raise his arms. The singing stopped. The next moment, High Westus was there. Spreading his arms, he shoved us back in order to be first in. He put himself in position with evident satisfaction, raised his arm like a signal mast and his hand with a coal shovel and fetched such a blow with a white sack as he would have felled an ox. Himmelstoss was thrown down. He, he rolled five yards and started to yell, but we were prepared for that and had brought a cushion. High squatted down, laid the cushion on his knees, felt somewhere Himmelstoss's head was and pressed it down on the pillow. Immediately his voice was muffled. High let him get a gasp of air every so often when he would give a mighty yell that was immediately hushed. Jaden unbuttoned Himmelstoss's braces and pulled down his trousers, holding up the whip meantime in his teeth. Then he stood up and set to work. So I'll let's I'll leave the rest of that little scene to your enjoyment. That's page 48, 49, 50. They basically get a little bit of revenge on their abuser. Another thing that uh, so I'm just I'm just going through the book and I'm reading passages that grabbed me and I'll try to sketch together the happenings in between. But to be honest, most of this book it's almost like a not a lot happens. It's it's just very dark, and they're just stretching what, sketching out what life is like on the Western Front. It's very brutal and violent and gruesome, uh, but and also very emotional. So, page fifty-five, from the earth, from the air, sustaining forces pour on into us, mostly from the earth. To no man does the earth mean so much as the soldier, when he presses himself down upon her, and powerfully he buries his face and his limbs deep in her from the fear of death by shellfire. Then she is his only friend, his brother, his mother. He, he stifles his terror and his cries in her silence and her security. She shelters him and releases him for ten seconds to live, to run, ten seconds of life, receives him again and often forever. Earth, earth, earth. So it's very primal, uh, them being in the middle of all of this shell fire and gunfire. 
they're in the trenches and their only solace is clinging to the earth. Skip ahead a little bit. So that that section just actually just reminds me of all the horrific stuff that's going on now. Uh, So there's basically, uh, we're at the cusp of the Third World War. I mean, nobody wants to say it, but that's kind of the direction we're going. Uh, uh, If you can just imagine being a helpless mother or soldier or just citizen in the Gaza Strip or in Ukraine, uh, and there's really no safe place to go other than to just cling under a berm and grip the dirt and hope that you don't get hit. So we have a lot to be thankful for living in the safety of the United States. Um, So continuing on page 81. So now they've been on the Western Front for some time. And Himmelstoss comes, joins them. So at this moment, Himmelstoss appears. He comes straight up to our group. Jaden's face turns red. He stretches his length on the grass and shuts his eyes in excitement. Himmelstoss is a little hesitant. His gait becomes slower. Then he marches up to us. No one makes any motion to stand up. Crop looks up at him with interest. He continues to stand in front of us and wait. As no one says anything, he launches a, well, a couple seconds go by. Apparently Himmelstoss doesn't quite know what to do. He would like most to set us all on the run again, but he seems to have learned already that the front line isn't a parade ground. He tries, on, he tries it on, though, and by addressing himself to one instead of to all of the us in hopes to get some response, Crop is nearest. Now he skips down. Himmelstoss is here. He's, he's essentially, like, uh, heckling the soldiers. Uh, Himmelstoss is disconcerted. Since when have we become so familiar? So basically, they're on the front line, and Himmelstoss is basically this. He's one of those garrison type of personalities that's really big on rank, order, structure. And that all goes out the window when you're outside the wire and you're on the front line. Uh, all of those those stupid... Uh, customs and uh, you know just blindly bowing to authority that kind of goes out the window um, so Himmelstoss is just sitting here getting more and more angry in this scene that they, they they aren't bowing to respect him I mean these are guys that have been getting shot at blown up watching their friends get killed and then this guy comes from the rear and starts barking orders page 82 Himmelstoss is a raging book of army regulations. The Kaiser couldn't be more insulted. Jaden, I command you, as your superior officer, stand up. Anything else you would like? Asks Jaden. Will you obey my order or not? Jaden replies without knowing it in the well-known classical phrase. At the same time, he ventilates his backside. I'll have you court-martialed, storms Himmelstoss. We watch him disappear in the direction of the orderly room. High and Jaden burst into a regular Pete Digger's bellow. High laughs so much that he dislocates his jaw and suddenly stands there, helpless with his mouth wide open. Albert has to put it back in again, giving it a blow with his fist. It's so crazy. They, they describe all kinds of crazy physical situations in this book, and I'm just giving you a highlight reel of what captured my eye as I was reading it and skip to the next next little passage I highlighted page 101 so again they're on the west they're on the front line the front is a cage in which we must await fearfully whatever may happen we lie under the network of arching shells and live in a suspense of uncertainty over us chance hovers If a shot comes, we can duck. That is all. We neither know nor can determine where it will fall. It is this chance that makes us indifferent. A few months ago, I was sitting in a dugout playing scat. After a while, I stood up and I went to visit some friends in another dugout. On my return, 
nothing more was to be seen of the first one. It had been blown to pieces by a direct hit. I went back to the second and arrived just in time to lend a hand digging it out. In the interval, it had been buried. It is just as much a matter of chance that I am still alive as that I might have been hit. In a bomb-proof dugout, I may be smashed to atoms and in the open may survive ten hours' bombardment unscathed. No soldier outlives a thousand chances, but every soldier believes in chance and trusts his luck. Let's skip ahead one. So the next thing, they describe like just the disgustingness in great detail of the trenches that they're fighting in. So page 102, the rats here are particularly repulsive. They are so fat, the kind we call corpse rats. They have shocking, evil, naked faces. It is nauseating to see their long, nude tails. They seem to be mighty hungry. Almost every man has had his bread gnawed. Crop wrapped his waterproof sheet and put it under his head. But he cannot sleep because they run over his face to get at it. Dettering meant to outwit them. He fastened a thin wire to the roof and suspended his bread from it. During the night, when he switched on his pocket torch, he saw the wire swing to and fro. On the bread was riding a fat rat. At last, we put a stop to it. We cannot afford to throw the bread away, because then we should have nothing left to eat in the morning. So we carefully cut off the bits of bread that the animals have gnawed. So he goes on over the next couple pages and just describe how they eventually get rid of the rats. That that piece was so vivid and disgusting and humanizing that you are that they are lying there in the mud the soaked mud and they're running out of food the rats are eating their food and later on they will regret not eating the pieces of bread that had been touched by the rats you know for sanity it's not like they were casually throwing away the bread the rats harbored disease, and in those days they didn't have modern antibiotics. So they were they were right to waste the bread. Uh, but like 100 pages later, they're literally dying of starvation. So, All right, skip ahead, page 105. Every man is aware of the heavy shells tearing down the parapet, rooting up the embankment and demolishing the upper layers of concrete. When a shell lands in the trench, we know how... We note how the hollow, furious blast is like a blow from a, the paw of a raging beast of prey. Already by morning, a few of the recruits are green and vomiting. They are too inexperienced. Next page. Our trench is almost gone. At many places, it is only 18 inches high. It is broken by holes and craters and mountains of earth. A shell lands square in front of our post. At once it is dark. We are buried and must dig ourselves out. After an hour, the entrance is clear again, and we are calmer because we have had something to do. Our company commander scrambles in and reports that two dugouts are gone. The recruits calm themselves when they see him. He says that an attempt will be made to bring up food this evening. That sounds reassuring. No one had thought of it except Jaden. Now the outside world seems to draw a little nearer. If food can be brought up, think recruits, then it can't be really then it can't really be so bad. We do not disabuse them. We know that food is as important as ammunition, and only for that reason must be brought up. But it miscarries. A second party finally goes out. And it also turns back. 
Finally, Cat tries, and even he reappears without accomplishing anything. No one gets through. Not even a fly is small enough to get through such a barrage. We pull in our belts tighter and chew every mouthful three times as long. Still, the food does not last out. We are damnably hungry. I take out a scrap of bread, eat the white, and put the crust back in my knapsack. From time to time, I nibble at it. Jaden, the night is unbearable. We cannot sleep, but stare ahead of us and doze. Jaden regrets that we wasted the gnawed pieces of bread on the rats. We would gladly have them again to eat now. We are short of water. We are short of water too, but not seriously yet. So things are getting more and more harrowing in the trenches. They're starting to get closer and closer to the enemy. Page 112, we recognize the smooth, distorted faces, the helmets. They are French. They have already suffered heavily when they reach the remnants of the barbed wire entanglements. A whole line has gone down before our machine guns. Then we have a lot of stoppages, and they come nearer. The lines stop behind us. They can advance no farther. The attack is crushed by our artillery. We watch. The fire lifts a hundred yards, and we break forward. Beside me, a lance corporal has his head torn off. He runs a few more steps. He runs a few steps more while the blood spouts from his neck like a fountain. Let's skip ahead a little bit. Page 118. Now they're pulling back. The fight ceases. We get back pretty well. Then gradually, we become something like men again. The corned beef over there is famous along the whole front. Occasionally, it has been the chief reason for a flying raid on our part. For our nourishment is generally very bad. We have constant hunger. We bagged five tins altogether. The fellows over there are well looked after. They fare magnificently as against us. Poor starving wretches with our turnip jam. They can get all the meat they want. High has scored a thin loaf of white French bread and stuck it behind his belt like a spade. It is a bit bloody at one corner, but that can be cut off. It is a good thing we have something decent to eat at least. We still have a use for all of our strength. Enough to eat is just as valuable as a good dugout. It can save our lives. That is the reason we are so greedy for it. Jaden has captured two water bottles full of cognac. We pass them around. So the next scene, he's on night duty, sentry watch, and his mind is kind of wandering at this point. It is strange that all the memories that come have these two qualities. They are always completely calm. That is predominant in them. And even if they are not really calm, they come so. They become so. They are soundless apparitions that speak to me, with looks and gestures silently, without any word. And it is the alarm of their silence that forces me to lay hold of my sleeve and my rifle, lest I should abandon myself to the liberation and allurement in which my body would dilate and gently pass away into the still forces that lie behind these things. They are quiet in this way, because quietness is so unattainable for us now. At the front there is no quietness, and the curse of the front reaches so far that we never pass beyond it. Even in the remote depots and the rest areas, the droning and muffled noise of shelling is always in our ears. We are never so far off that it is no more to be heard. But these last few days, it has been unbearable. Skip ahead, page 128. Battle planes don't trouble us, but the observation planes we hate like the plague. They put the artillery to us. 
A few minutes after they appear, shrapnel and high explosives begin to drop on us. We lose 11 men in one day that way, and five of them stretcher bearers. Two are smashed, so that Jaden remarks you could scrape them off the wall of the trench with a spoon and bury them in a mess tin. Another has the lower part of his body and his legs torn off. Dead, his chest leans against the side of the trench. His face is lemon yellow. In his beard still burns a cigarette. It glows until it dies out on his lips. A skip ahead. Suddenly the shelling begins to pound again. Soon we are sitting up once more with the rigid tenseness of a black of blank anticipation. Attack, counterattack, charge, repulse. These are words, but what things they signify. We have lost a good men a good many men, mostly recruits. Reinforcements have again been sent up to our sector. They are one of the new regiments, composed almost entirely of young fellows just called up. They have had hardly any training and are sent into the field with only a theoretical knowledge. They do not know what a hand grenade is. It is true, but they have very little idea of cover. And what is most important of all, have no eye for it. A fold in the ground has to be quite 18 inches high before they can see it. Although we need reinforcements, the recruits give us almost more trouble than they are worth. They are helpless in this grim fighting area. They fall like flies. Modern trench warfare demands knowledge and experience. A man must have a feeling for the contours of the ground, an ear for the sound and character of the shells, must be able to decide beforehand where they will drop, how they will burst, and how to shelter from them. The young recruits, of course, know none of these things. They get killed simply because they hardly can tell shrapnel from high explosive. They are mown down because they are listening anxiously to the roar of the big coal boxes falling in the rear, and they miss the light, piping whistle of the low-spreading daisy cutters. They flock together like sheep instead of scattering, and even the wounded are shot down like hares by the airmen. Their pale turnip faces, their pitiful clenched hands, the fine courage of these poor devils, the desperate charges and attacks made by the poor brave wretches who are so terrified that they dare not cry out loudly, but with battered chests, with torn bellies, arms and legs, only whimper softly for their mothers and cease as soon as one looks at them. That's some scary stuff. And then he goes on to describe a surprise gas attack. I'll I'll skip past that. Next, page 131. In one part of the trench, I suddenly run into Himmelstoss. Remember Himmelstoss, the abusive corporal, promoted to sergeant, tension between uh, these guys and Himmelstoss in the first part of the book. So in one part of the trench, I suddenly run into Himmelstoss. We dive into the same dugout. Breathless, we are all lying one beside the other, waiting for the charge. When we run out again, although I am very excited, I suddenly think, where's Himmelstoss? I quickly jump back into the dugout and find him with a small scratch, lying in a corner, pretending to be wounded. His face looks sullen. He is in a panic. He is new to it, too. But it makes me mad that young recruits should be out there, and he here. Get out, I spit. He does not stir. His lips quiver. His mustache twitches. Out, I repeat. He draws up his legs, crouches back against the wall, and shows his teeth like a cur. I seize him by the arm and try to pull him up. He barks. This is too much for me. I grab him by the neck and shake him like a sack. His head jerks from side to side. You lump. Will you get out? You hound. You skunk. Sneak out of it, would you? His eyes his eye becomes glassy. I knock his head against the wall. You cow. So basically he kicks the shit out of Himmelstoss. And you see what's going on here and why this really, this like captivates the reader. He's just describing this. This this guy was a power abusive NCO who demanded respect from everyone. 
Now these guys are watching these little recruits with no training get mutilated in the trenches, get shelled to death. And this Sergeant Himmelstoss is hiding. I think it just shows that that disgusting aspect of human nature. That's I'm always like I'm always suspicious of people who crave being in positions of power. You always wonder about people like that. I've I've encountered them in medicine too. And this is just a little example of sometimes those people that are very abusive with power, you peel the onion there there's a just a coward underneath that. Fortunately, for purposes of the story, there is some redemption with Himmelstoss. He, uh, you, you'll see what happens. So let's skip ahead. Uh, habit is the explanation of why we seem to forget things so quickly. Yesterday we were under fire. Today we act the fool and go foraging through the countryside. Tomorrow we go up to the trenches again. We forget nothing really. But so long as we have to stay here in the field, the front lines, when they are past, sink down in us like a stone. They are too grievous for us to be able to reflect on them at once. If we did that, we should have been destroyed long ago. I soon found out this much. Terror can be endured so long as a man simply ducks, but it kills. If a man thinks about it, just as we turn into animals when we go up to the line, because that is the only thing which brings us through safely, so we turn into wags and loafers when we are resting. We can do nothing else. It is a sheer necessity. We want to live at any price, so we cannot burden ourselves with feelings which, though they might be ornamental enough in peacetime, would be out of place here. Kemrick is dead. High Westus is dying. They will have a job with Hans Kramer's body at the Judgment Day, piecing it together after a direct hit. And then he's talking about uh, the rest of his colleagues that have um, that have fallen. And then skip ahead, page 165. So they are afforded some time off. And in this section of the book, he goes home to his village in rural Germany and is able to see his mom and dad and the townspeople. It is pleasant to sit quietly somewhere, in the beer garden, for example, under chestnuts by the Skittle Alley. The leaves fall down on the table and on the ground. Only a few, the first. A glass of beer stands in front of me. I've learned to drink in the army. The glass is half empty, but there are a few good swigs ahead of me. Skip ahead. The sky is blue. Between the leaves of the chestnuts rises the green spire of St. Margaret's Church. This is good. I like it but I cannot get on with the people. My mother is the only one who asks no questions. Not so my father. He wants me to tell him about the front. He is curious in a way that I find stupid and distressing. I no longer have any real contact with him. There is nothing he likes more than just hearing about it. I realize he does not know that a man cannot talk of such things. I would do it willingly, but it is too dangerous for me to put these things into words. I am afraid they might then become gigantic and I be no longer able to master them. What would become of us if everything that happens out there were quite clear to us? So in this book that was written in 1928, he's bringing up the the wall that a lot of these combat veterans can't get past. 
it's this wall of not being able to talk about the horrific things that they experienced, not being able to let go of that burden. And I know that there's some states that are that have actively incorporated the, the use of certain types of medications and psychedelic substances to assist with uh, breaking down that psychological wall to release some of those events that soldiers have experienced. Fortunately, I've been blessed in this life. I, I have not had to suffer that sort of trauma. Unfortunately for many patients that I have interacted with over the years, they have, and those traumatic experiences haunt them the rest of their lives and affects their overall level of functioning. So I have a lot of respect for the mental health professionals who take on that challenge of incorporating uh, uh, alternative medicines to help break down that wall. So moving on, page 168, I imagined, I imagined leave would be different from this. Indeed, it was different a year ago. It is I, of course, that have changed in the interval. There lies a gulf between that time and today. At that time, I still knew nothing about the war. We had only been in quiet sectors. But now I see that I have been crushed without knowing it. I find I do not belong here anymore. It is a foreign world. Some of these people ask questions. Some ask no questions. But one can see that the latter are proud of themselves for their silence. They often say with a wise air that these things cannot be talked about. They plume themselves on it. I prefer to be alone so that no one troubles me, for they all come back to the same thing, how badly it goes and how well it goes. One thinks it is this way, another that, and yet they are always absorbed in the things that go to make up their existence. Formerly, I have lived in just the same way myself, but now I feel no contact here. They talk too much for me. They have worries, aims, desires that I cannot comprehend. So this is a really important concept here. And this came about when I was in training, there was this anesthesiologist in the blood bank department that took us out to lunch with four World War II veterans. And it was an incredible experience to just sit there and have lunch with these amazing human beings that lived through World War II. One was a paratrooper. The other was uh, an infantry guy. The other one was in, uh, I think, a truck driver. But anyways... Whenever you sit down to talk to veterans of any war, like this is this sounds like counterintuitive because people are curious about war, but don't ask them about the war. It, it's it's not it's not something they want to talk about. I guarantee you that unless they've gone through years of therapy. Most of these guys, they just want to talk about just normal stuff. So don't, just don't ask them. Uh, put your curiosity aside and think of how those memories are affecting the other person. Think about the horrors they went through and how it's entirely logical that they don't want to bring that stuff up, especially not in a social setting in public. I'll skip ahead. Page 179. What is leave? A pause that only makes everything after it so much worse. Already the sense of parting begins to intrude itself. My mother watches me silently. I know she counts the days. Every morning she is sad. It is one day less. She has put away my pack. She does not want to be reminded by it. The hours pass quickly if a man broods. I pull myself together. I go with my sister to the slaughterhouse to get a pound or two of bones. This is a great favor, and people line up early in the morning and stand waiting. Many of them faint. We have no luck. 
After waiting by in turns for three hours, the queue disperses. The bones have not lasted out. It is a good thing that I get my rations. I bring them to my mother, and in that way, we all get something decent to eat. The days grow ever more strained, and my mother's eyes more sorrowful. Four days left now. I must go and see Kemrick's mother. So Kemrick is his friend who dies, and he has to be the one that goes and informs the deceased soldier's family, his, specifically his mother. And I won't get into uh, the heart-wrenching encounter of that, but I will skip ahead to another passage that grabbed me here. So, so skip ahead, page 188. Now he's done with his period of leave, and he's back at a different camp. So he's not on the front lines. I think he's at a different station where he's part of a group of soldiers that is defending a Russian prison camp or a, a, it's a, it's a German army camp, but the prisoners are Russian. So I think this descriptive paragraph, this set of paragraphs kind of grabbed me because it kind of juxtaposes this beauty, uh, this natural beauty with the darkness of a prison So page 188, among the junipers and birch trees on the moor, we practice company drill every day. It is bearable if one expects nothing better. We advance at a run, fling ourselves down, and our panting breath moves the stalks of the grasses and the flowers of the heather heather and to and fro. Looked at so closely, one sees the fine sand is composed of millions of the tiniest pebbles, as clear as if they have been made in a laboratory. It is strangely inviting to dig one's hands into it. But most beautiful are the woods with their line of birch trees. Their color changes with every minute. Now the stems gleam the purest white, and between them, airy and silken, hangs the pastel green of the leaves. The next moment all changes to an opalescent blue as the shivering breezes pass down from the heights and touch the greens lightly away. And again in one place it deepens almost to black as the cloud passes over the sun. And this shadow moves like a ghost through the dim trunks and rides far out over the moor to the sky Then the birches stand out again like gay banners on the white poles with their red and gold patches of autumn-tinted leaves. I often become so lost in the play of soft light and transparent shadow that I almost fail to hear the commands. It is when one is alone that one begins to observe nature and to love her, and I have not much companionship and do not even desire it. We are too little acquainted with one another to do more than joke a bit and play poker or nap in the evenings. Alongside our camp is the big Russian prison camp. It is separated from us by a wire fence. In, but in spite of this, the prisoners come across to us. They seem nervous and fearful. Though most of, though most of them are big fellows with beards, they look like meek, scolded St. Bernard dogs. They slink about our camp and pick over the garbage tins. One can imagine what they find there. With us, food is pretty scarce, and none too good at that. Turnips cut into six pieces and boiled in water and unwashed carrot tops. Moldy potatoes are titbits, and the chief luxury is a thin rice soup in which float little bits of beef sinew, but these are cut up so small that they take a lot of finding. I don't know what it is about the description of foodstuffs in some of these old books. They just, it's just, it always grabs my ear. I got the same reaction from the book on Ernest Shackleton's voyage to Antarctica. The book is called Endurance, which I plan on covering in a future episode. But something about this description of just like fatigue and tiredness and these measly rations. So skip ahead, uh, page 192. 
I am often on guard over the Russians. In the darkness one sees their forms move like six storks, like great birds. They come up close to the wire fence and lean their faces against it. Their fingers hook round the mesh. Often many stand side by side and breathe the wind that comes down from the moors and the forest. They rarely speak, and then only a few words. They are more human and more brotherly towards one another, it seems to me, than we are. But perhaps this is merely because they feel themselves to be more unfortunate than us. Anyway, the war is over, so far as they are concerned. But to wait for dysentery is not much of a life either. That's pretty dark. So it's just looking over these Russian sh- soldiers that are living in the conditions of a prison camp, and and it's basically either make it to go back home or suffer dysentery. So the next few pages, he's just talking about daily duties at the prison camp, in their job, in their role as guards. Page 201, there is a great deal of polishing to be done. We are inspected at every turn. Everything that is torn is exchanged for new. I score a spotless new tunic out of it, and cat, of course, an entire outfit. A rumor is going around that there may be peace, but the other story is more likely that we are bound for Russia. Still, what do we need new things for in Russia? At last, it leaks out. The Kaiser is coming to review us. Hence, all the inspections. For eight whole days, one would suppose we were in a base camp. There is so much drill and fuss. Everyone is peevish and touchy. We do not take kindly to all this polishing, much less to the full-dress parades. Such things exasperate a soldier more than the front line. At last, the moment arrives. We stand to attention and the Kaiser appears. We are curious to see what he looks like. He stalks along the line, and I am really rather disappointed. Judging from his pictures, I imagined him to be bigger and more powerfully built, and above all, to have a thundering voice. He distributes iron crosses, speaks to this man and that. Then we march off. Afterwards, we discuss it. Jaden says with astonishment, So that is the all-highest? And everyone... Bar nobody has to stand up stiff in front of him? He meditates. Hindenburg, too. He has to stand up to him, eh? Sure, cat. So this is, this is just pretty crazy. Like, the emperor of imperial Germany is this unimpressive physical specimen. It's it's very interesting to me how, like, these, these you know, I don't know if you call it, like, the Napoleon complex, but, like, these, uh, these just maniacal... Uh, personality types that end up being in these positions of power. I've also noticed this in in the online culture. Sometimes you get like these larger than life personalities that you never really see what they actually look like, but on the internet through either text or photoshopped images and uh and heavily edited YouTube videos, they look a lot bigger and powerful than they really are. But then you see the person in real life and you're like, really? That's 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 who I'm idolizing or lionizing. So it's just an interesting aspect of human behavior. Skip ahead. And this is page 223. This is going to be the last passage that I read you from the book because, again, on these, I don't want to completely give away the book. I just want to excite you enough and bring out some of the emotion, some aspects of the story that moved me in hopes that maybe you will pick up this book and share what you learn from it. So page 223, this is is a really major scene where he kills a man and... uh, He just really, it really messes him up. The silence spreads. I talk and must talk. So I speak to him and I say to him, Comrade, I did not want to kill you. If you jumped in here again, I would not do it. And if you would be a sensible too. But you were only an idea to me before. An abstraction that lived in my mind 
and called forth its appropriate response. It was that abstraction I stabbed. But now, for the first time, I see you are a man like me. I thought of your hand grenades, of your bayonet, of your rifle. Now I see your wife and your face and our fellowship. Forgive me, comrade. We always see it too late. Why do they never tell us that you are poor devils like us, that your mothers are just as anxious as ours, and that we have the same fear of death, and the same dying, and the same agony? Forgive me, comrade. How could you be my enemy? If we threw away these rifles and this uniform, you could be my brother just like Cat and Albert. Take twenty years of my life, comrade, and stand up. Take more for I do not know what I can even attempt to do with it now. It is quiet. The front is still, except for the crackle of rifle fire. The bullets rain over. They are not fired haphazard, but shrewdly aimed from all sides. I cannot get out. I will write to your wife, I say hastily to the dead man. I will write to her. She must hear it from me. I will tell her everything I have told you. She shall not suffer. I will help her, and your parents too, and your child. Let's skip ahead. My brain is taxed beyond endurance, but I realize this much, that I will never dare to write these people as I intended. Impossible. I look at the portraits once more. They are clearly not rich people. I might send them money anonymously if I earn anything later on. I seize upon that, it is at least something to hold on to. This dead man is bound up with my life. Therefore, I must do everything, promise everything in order to save myself. I swear blindly that I mean to live only for his sake and his family. With wet lips, I try to placate him. And deep down in me lies the hope that I may buy myself off in this way and perhaps even get out of this. It is a little stratagem. If only I am allowed to escape, then I will see to it. So I open the book and read slowly. Gerard Duval, Compositor. With the dead man's pencil I write the address on an envelope, then swiftly thrust everything back in his tuned it, in it, into his tunic. I have killed the printer Gerard Duval. I must be a printer. I think confusedly be a printer, printer. By afternoon I am calmer. My fear was grounded, was groundless. The name troubles me no more. The madness passes. Comrade, I say to the dead man, but I say it calmly, today you, tomorrow me. But if I come out of it, comrade, I will fight against this that has struck us both down from you, taken life, and from me, life also. I promise you, comrade, it shall never happen again. And that's where I'll leave it. All Quiet on the Western Front by Eric Maria Remark, a classic war novel that had been sitting on my shelf for years, and I finally pulled it off and shared it with you. On this Thanksgiving episode of the Three Deeper Cuts podcast, to give you something to be thankful for, to remind us of the fragility of our lives, to keep us humble in our successes, and to make us more aware of the consequences of indescript violence in the world. I was just listening to an episode of Lex Friedman from two weeks ago, and it reminded me. Again, I'm not. I'm not following the news on a daily basis for my own mental health. I check the news once a week or once every two week, and. I had lost sight of the 30,000-foot narrative of the war in Ukraine. And 
in reality, what happened, this is not the narrative that has told them been told to us by mainstream media, but we actually started this world, this war. Us, the United States and Western Europe, we started this war from 1999, then 2014, and then to 2022. We knew that expanding NATO to Ukraine would provoke a war. We knew it would happen. And during the presidency of President Kennedy, the Cuban Missile Crisis was the opposite scenario, where the Soviet unit, the Soviet Union wanted to put missiles in Cuba in our backyard, and we weren't having that. So how could we be so blind and ignore how another superpower would react? And in all these scenarios, it's, it's always the working class, 19, 20-year-old infantry marine, infantry army soldier, whose life is taken. So I tell you this not to be a downer, you know, or to make you guys not enjoy what we have. That's not the reason I bring this up. I just bring this up merely for awareness and to promote reading old books, which is one of the themes of 3D Bird Cuts podcasts. 3D Cuts is your lifestyle magazine for the practicing surgical pathologists. Every week I bring you high-signal content fueled by 10% buffered neutral formalin. At 3D Cuts, our message is simple. Write every day. Read old books. And get out of the 24-hour news cycle. Happy Thanksgiving, y'all. Have an excellent day. Have a great next week. Be safe and stay curious. I'll see you next time.